Hear now the word of God from Revelation chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked it and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who have been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, this is a wonderful service and fellowship. I hope you realize how significant it is when we come together as the people of God and pray together. That is one of the Aspects of our time together that I look forward to more than any other when our elders are leading us together to the throne of grace in prayer. We know the Lord is hearing and answering those prayers, and he is doing exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. Now this evening we are continuing in our study of the first manifestation of God's covenant to redeem men from their sin. Adam, the covenant of commencement. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ has come and in such a marvelous way has opened up the portals of heaven for us. We give thanks that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And we give thanks that no man can come to the Father but by him. But we thank you that he has shown himself to us, that he has manifested his truth in our hearts, and so that by faith we are more than conquerors 
through him who loved us. Help us as we consider the way in which the Old Testament word of God anticipated the coming of our Savior, that we may be moved at the wonder of the perfection of God's plan and purpose. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Now, we're talking about the levels of conflict, the three levels of conflict that are found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. What does Genesis 3, verse 15 say? Let's look at that verse. God says, enmity, hatred, animosity, warfare, I shall put. Now, that's a strange circumstance in which God is to be working, isn't it? He to be the source of enmity. We would think more often of God as a source of peace. And as a matter of fact, when this verse is referred to in the New Testament, in in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, it says that the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. So even though God is here the originator of enmity and warfare, his ultimate goal is to establish true peace. But God is not one who says, peace, peace when there is no peace. So Genesis 3.15 says, I, that is God, will put enmity between you, that is Satan, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your, that is Satan's head, and you, that is Satan, will crush his heel. Now as you look at this little diagram of the enmity, Do you see anything wrong with this diagram? On this particular day, obviously, that's the wrong diagram, right? What are we doing with a diamond shape? We should have a gridiron, right, if we're talking about warfare and enmity and struggle going on right here before us today. Well, we'll insist that we'll make something important out of this, and though the diagram may not be inspired or relevant for today, the words certainly are inspired. Now look at, let's look at the three levels of enmity that are established in Genesis 3, verse 15. This is the basis by which salvation and redemption is to be accomplished for men. First of all, the enmity is said to be between you, that is Satan, and the woman. Now, why do you think the woman would be mentioned first? Why is it that God did not say, I will put enmity between you and the man? Why the woman first? Well, that's something of a difficult question to answer. It may be that the woman was the first to fall to temptation, and therefore she was mentioned first. It may be because of the particular role that the woman was to play in bringing forth the seed that ultimately would defeat Satan and his purposes. That could be very likely why the woman is mentioned first, because she is the vehicle by which the seed is to be born that is to destroy Satan and his power. It may be in part also that God did not want the man to have any basis for disparaging the woman, or regarding her as secondary insignificance in this struggle with Satan and his forces, or in any way secondary in his purposes of redemption. So he names the woman first as the one that is to enter into conflict with Satan. So this is the first level of conflict. Now who is this woman that is referred to at this point? 
Well, the woman could be Eve. It could be the first woman that is referred to. I will put enmity between Satan and Eve. But more likely in this context, it's just generally referring to womankind without speaking of any specific woman, but saying that from among womankind, there shall be those that shall enter into this mortal struggle between Satan and those who are to be the redeemed of God. Now the second level of enmity is, is an expanded level of enmity between your seed, that is the seed of Satan, and her seed, that is the seed of the woman. Now who is the seed of the woman? Well, you might be tempted to think and to conclude, first of all, and almost immediately, that the seed of the woman would be all those that are born of women. That is, all humanity would be those that would be at enmity between Satan and themselves. But the immediately following chapter of Genesis indicates that that could not be correct. What happens in Genesis chapter 4? What is the main topic of Genesis chapter 4? Well, the main topic of Genesis chapter 4 is Cain killing his brother Abel. Cain rose up in an anger, killed his brother. Now, if you look at the New Testament, 1 John chapter 3 verse 12, you find out why it was. What was the ultimate explanation as to why Cain killed his brother. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. Verses 11 and 12. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. The seed of the woman could not be simply all those that are born of womankind. Because in the very next chapter of the first children that come of Adam and Eve, one of them is defined in the Bible as being of the evil one, that is, of the seed of Satan. And therefore, not all those that are born of the woman are those that will enter into conflict with Satan. Who then is the seed of the woman? Well, we have to go back to the original framework of Genesis 3.15, where God says, I will put enmity. I will be the source of that enmity. I will put it in the hearts of certain ones to hate Satan and his purposes, to oppose Satan and his resistance to God and his purposes. So the seed of the woman then may be defined as all of those born of the woman who have the enmity against Satan placed in their hearts. The seed of the woman is made up of all of those born of woman throughout all generations and ages up until the present that have placed in their hearts an enmity against Satan and his purposes. Now we mentioned the little fact this last Sunday evening, but here, is, here it is again. Here is, in seed form, the biblical teaching of predestination. That there is a sovereignty of God in the working of the salvation of men. 
Why is it that some people have an enmity against Satan and others do not? It is because God places that enmity in the hearts of some. Why God does that is a mystery we cannot fully understand. We know it is not because of something inherently good in those people, but it is the grace of God that puts in your heart a hatred and a willingness to oppose Satan and his purposes. Our Lord Jesus Christ says, No man comes unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. It is only as God works in your heart and draws you to him that you have a natural animosity against Satan and his purposes. Otherwise, you're lined up on the side of Satan. So that is the seed of the woman. It is all those in whose hearts God has set an enmity against Satan. What about your heart? Are you set against Satan and his purposes? You can see that in Romans chapter 7 where Paul the apostle says, Oh, wretched man that I am. What am I going to do? That which I would do, I do not do. And that which I would not do, I do. You see, he's not describing there the natural man. He's describing the regenerate man, the man who hates sin. As he says early in the chapter, I hate that which I am doing. If you're in a situation in which you hate your sin, in which you despise the evil that you're doing within yourself, praise God. Because that's a sign that you are of the seed of the woman. That you, are, that you have God's committal to bring you to eternal salvation. Now there is a third level of the enmity. And what is it? Well, here you have three options. Three options. And out of these options, two of the three seem to be biblical and correct. Notice that Genesis 3.15 narrows down the animosity. First, there's enmity between Satan and the woman. Then there's animosity between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. And finally, he shall crush your head and you, that is Satan, shall crush his heel. Now, who is it that is this he? in the third phrase of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Well, the first possibility is that this he is actually an it referring back to the seed. So that you have a singular word that is used for a multiple of people. Now look at Romans chapter 16, verse 20. We've referred to that verse already this evening, but look once more at Genesis, or excuse me, Romans 16 verse 20. And you can see how Paul the Apostle in Romans 16 verse 20 supports the idea that the it, the he, the third level of the animosity is referring back to this multiple seed. What does Romans 16 verse 20 say? It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, is that a singular your or a plural your? Well, you can't tell here, but this is a plural your feet. The God of peace is soon going to crush Satan under all of your feet. You all are going to enter into the joy and the victory of crushing Satan under your feet. 
And that seems to be a direct allusion to Genesis 3.15. So here the it would refer to the seed, corporately speaking. We can all rejoice over this fact. The enemy, Satan, and his power is going to be broken. He is not going to have dominion over us. He's not going to have one remnant of power left in us. He and all his influence in terms of bringing our bodies down to death is going to be broken. And we are going to be delivered in body and soul in perfection so that we will not have Satan's power over us. But what about this second possibility? Not only it referring to the multiple seed by a singular pronoun, what about this second? He shall crush your head while you, Satan, shall crush his heel. What about the possibility that in Genesis 3.15 you have a reference not only to the multiple seed against the multiple seed, but a single saving hero entering into conflict on behalf of the seed that opposes Satan. Well, that also seems to be a correct understanding of this last phrase in Genesis 3.15, he shall crush your head. You notice that on this side of the animosity and the warfare, it narrows from the seed back to Satan. There's going to be a hand-to-hand combat between Satan and between a single individual. And that single individual then, we know ultimately, would be the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed that is born of the woman. And that is what happened at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ when he entered into mortal conflict with Satan. There Satan crushed his heel. Satan wounded Christ at that point. But Christ crushed the head of Satan. He destroyed the power of Satan so that the multiple victory of all of us is wrapped up in the victory of the single saving hero, our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now there's a, it's interesting to notice here with respect to this he, that in the earliest, one of the earliest versions or translations of the Old Testament, there is a witness to the fact that this would be a proper way to understand Genesis 3.15. 200 years before Jesus Christ came, the Jewish people who had been overrun by the Greeks, by Alexander the Great and all his conquests, those Jewish people who had learned to speak Greek as their natural language, they couldn't read their Hebrew Bibles. And so some of the scholars of the Jews began to take the Hebrew Bible and to translate it into Greek so that the Jewish people could read the scriptures of the Old Testament. Well, when it came to this particular verse, Genesis 3.15, the translators from the Hebrew to the Greek had to make a decision. In Hebrew, there is no distinction between it and he. And so the meaning can float between those two. But in Greek, they had to make a decision. So here are these Jewish scholars, 200 years before Christ is born, and they're trying to understand Genesis 3.15. And they have to render that either alta, it, or altas, he. And they made the decision before Christ was born to render it altas, he. That is, he. And so that seems to indicate fairly clearly that 200 years before Christ was born, 
the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah, for a Savior to come, as it had been prophesied in Genesis 3.15. If you're at work with a Jewish friend, get into a discussion with Genesis, about Genesis 3.15 with them. See what they have to say about it. And see if there isn't a possibility that you can bear witness to the fact that even their people understood Genesis 3.15, even as Paul did, even as the New Testament did, as a prophecy of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now here is a curious third possibility. What do you think about that one? We accept the first two, it and he, as legitimate understandings of Genesis 3.15. But where do we get this she shall crush the head of Satan. Well, that comes from another early translation of the Bible. It comes from the Latin translation in approximately the 4th or 5th century A.D. after Christ. And in the Latin translation, it there reads, She. Since that time, the Roman Catholic Church has interpreted Genesis 3.15 to refer to the Virgin Mary. And it is concluded on the basis of this Latin translation, she shall crush his head, that here was a prophecy that the Virgin Mary would be co-redemptress with Jesus Christ, as the Roman Catholic Church has proclaimed her. In their theology and thinking, the Virgin Mary stands equally beside Jesus as the redemptress of the world who crushed Satan. If you visit Philadelphia, one of the hospitals there has this massive statue of the Virgin Mary. Perhaps you've seen a statue similar to this. And at the feet of this statue is a serpent coiled about the leg but being crushed by the foot of the Virgin Mary. That is the theology of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, is it a possible interpretation? The answer is not according to the language of the Bible itself. Not according to the original language of the Bible itself. It cannot be read that way. No Hebrew manuscript that is in existence represents the word there to be she. The context denies the possibility of rendering it, she shall crush the head of the serpent. So we return to this principal interpretation. He, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the one that is being prophesied in Genesis 3.15 as the one that shall defeat Satan and his purposes. And here in Genesis 3.15 then, you see in seed form a word from God that explains the entirety of human history that has developed since then. The whole of history is summarized in this little verse where it says there will be this perpetual conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan and that conflict will climax in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see it in figurative form in the days of David. You remember Goliath coming out? That one mighty hero, he towers over all the Israelites. He frightens them by his appearance. And what does he say? He says, send me out a man. Send me out a man and let him fight with me. And if he can overcome me, then we will all be your servants. 
But if I can overcome him, and he was confident that he could, then all of you will be our servants. So one representative man is there. And all the Israelites are cowering and terrified because of the appearance of Goliath and his strength. But out comes a little lad named David. And David comes with his sling and his stones. And he, on behalf of the God of Israel, defeats that representative of Satan and his seed. He wins on behalf of all his people that great and triumphant victory. You don't need to cower and cringe at Satan. Resist the devil and he will flee from you now because Jesus Christ has accomplished redemption for us. Look in the book of Colossians chapter 2 and you can see one of the most beautiful descriptions in the New Testament of the victory that Christ has won in his struggle with Satan. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and following. Beginning in the middle of verse 13, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The reference to the powers and authorities is a phrase that is frequently used in the New Testament to refer to satanic powers, to the power of Satan in the world. And this verse says that Christ triumphed over the powers in the cross. How we can give thanks for the victory that has been won for us. Now looking back at Genesis chapter 3.15, look at the other two words that God says. This is the word to Satan, and that is a crucial verse in the whole of the unfolding of redemption. But look at verse 16. Here is the word to the woman. And what do you have? You have both curse and blessing spoken to the woman. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. Now the King James Version, James Version there says, your pain and your childbearing. And the interpretation is suggested that the curse of man was in the multiplication of children. But that Although that is a literal rendering of the passage, the more proper interpretation seems to be, I will greatly multiply your pains in your childbearing. It's not the multiplication of children that is a curse, for as a matter of fact, the great blessing on the seed of Abraham was, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your seed. Now that, again, in reaching a, a proper balance here, that is not speaking against birth control. The fact that God may bless in the multiplying of children is not inherently a word against birth control. It does mean that we must be careful. We must be wise. We must be judicious. We must be prayerful in determining the number of children that we are to bring in the world. But as the curse is spoken over the woman, 
greatly multiplying her pain in childbearing. Here referring to not only the act of childbearing, but all the many problems that may come to a woman in association with the bringing of children into the world, psychologically, physically, mentally, and every other way. I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. And certainly in the context of the grace of God, we do have the freedom under Christ to relieve that curse as much as is possible and is wise in the providence of God. But the blessing of the woman is you will bear children. The blessing is that there will not be an end to this struggle and conflict, but a seed will be produced by the woman that will be able to enter into the conflict with Satan and will win a great victory. Now this last little phrase in verse 16 has been subject to all kinds of interpretations. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. What does it mean? Well, it's a very difficult phrase to interpret. One suggestion is that the woman will have an excessive dependence upon her husband. Your desire shall be toward your husband. You will be excessively dependent upon your husband. But if you look at the very next chapter in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, and the fact that these verses are so close to, together seem to indicate where to look for a proper interpretation of this verse or this phrase. Look at Genesis 4, verse 7. This is God's word to Cain. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to you. The very same phrase used of the woman in the previous chapter. Your desire shall be to your husband. Its desire, that is sin's desire, will be toward you. Now what does that mean? Well, it seems to mean that sin's desire will be to dominate Cain. Sin's desire will be to control Cain. But Cain must rule over it. Now here is a part of the original curse, a disruption of the proper balance of the marital relationship. Your desire, and it seems to suggest here an improper desire to control and order the life of your husband. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And in trying to reach the balance there, the man very possibly, it suggested, will overstep his balance. And he will dominate the woman. He will rule over the woman in an improper manner. And that is a part of the curse. Now that is a problem with which we all must struggle in the marriage relationship. But we have this wonderful promise and blessing in our Lord Jesus Christ that through his redemption, we can find the right balance We can be restored to that balanced order that is intended by creation in which the woman realizes her full capacity as one made in the image of God and and in which the man also finds his full role in offering himself as one who loves and has every possible consideration for the woman and in which they too as one, as a team, work together for the glory of God. But there's the curse And the blessing of the woman. And finally to the man. The scripture says in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. 
To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat thereof. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plant of the field. In the sweat of your brow you will eat your bread until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and unto dust you shall return. What is the curse of man? The curse of man is that he must put in excessive labor for the fruit produced. The blessing of man is that he shall eat bread. God promises that his labor will be productive. And in all labor, says the proverb, there is profit. You will produce. But there's always going to be more paper on this side of the desk than that side of the desk. There's always going to be more to do than you have time to do it. It's going to always take longer to do a project. If you're like me, if you've got a project around the house and you estimate it's going to take you an hour, you better allow for three or four because it always takes longer than you think it should take. And if you're trying to learn a foreign language, you know you spend hours memorizing those paradigms and memorizing that vocabulary. And then three days later, what happens? It's all gone like a sieve. You've forgotten everything. Excessive labor for the fruit produced. That is the curse that God has placed on on man because of his sin. But the blessing is you shall eat bread. God will prosper and cause you to succeed as you labor for him. So that finally, in summarizing Genesis 3, verses 15 through 19, it suggested that this, these verses were not inspired of God. They were just inspired by a wise man. Well, if he was a wise man, he was an amazingly wise man because you have in these few verses an explanation of everything that occurs and has occurred in the history of the world since then. Notice that you can see, first of all, the common grace of of God toward all men. Not all of this has to do with grace, but how God deals with all men in general. There is the responsibility of man of providing bread, relieving pain, performing labor, bearing children, and dealing with the inevitability of death. That's what our life is all about. But on the redemptive side, look what you have in Genesis 3.15, the method of redemption's accomplishment. What is going to happen? One man, one hero is going to come forward to be, that is to be born of the woman, that is to enter into mortal conflict with Satan himself. And while Satan crushes his heel, he shall crush Satan's head. And that's exactly what happened at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan bruised him, but Christ destroyed Satan. Here you have also in Genesis 3, 15 through 19, an explanation of the mystery of redemption's application. The mystery of redemption's application. Why is it that when a preacher stands forth and preaches the gospel, the same gospel, one person believes and the other person doesn't believe. One person receives Christ, the other person doesn't receive Christ. One person repents of his sin and sets himself on a life of opposition to Satan and the other person continues to walk in the ways of Satan. Why is that? Well, Genesis 3.15 says it's because God sets the enmity in the heart of the one but does not set the enmity 
in the mystery of his own purpose and intent in the heart of the other. And finally, you see the consummation of goal of all of redemption in which there is a movement from the garden to the city. That is, man is still responsible to labor with his hands, to produce a culture that will be glorifying to God. And we will not always be in the Garden of Eden, but the ultimate picture is the city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven that Christ has established for us. We do not yet see all things fulfilled according to Genesis 3, 15 through 19. But we do see Jesus who has entered into this conflict, who has won the battle, and who has wrought redemption for us. So let us praise God for the wisdom of Scripture that in these few verses he could give to us an insight that should carry us through our whole lives and provide an understanding concerning all that occurs in the world. And let us look first, last, and always to the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer, the seed of the woman who has crushed the head of Satan. Let us close in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the work you have done for us. And we thank you for the certainty that we have a victory in the days to come. Bless and strengthen our faith that we may believe that you will accomplish all things good for your people. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Would you stand for the benediction?